You're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the topics that matter most in the consumer and retail industries. I'm your host, Monica Toriello. Hello, everyone. If you are like many people, your daily routines and habits have changed over the past couple of years and are continuing to change. Some people have maybe settled into a new rhythm and adopted new preferences that they'll stick with for a while. But for others, this period that we're in is still a time of reevaluating, resetting expectations, trying new things. And it does feel like every month or two brings new economic and social and geopolitical developments, which then have an effect on how consumers feel and how they spend their money. It can be difficult for companies to stay on top of these changes in consumer sentiment and consumer behavior. And one way that McKinsey has kept its finger on the pulse of the consumer, so to speak, is by conducting regular surveys on consumer attitudes and shopping behavior. And over time, we've developed a picture of which behaviors seem to be temporary and which seem to be stickier. And with us today are three McKinsey partners who are leaders of Consumer Pulse, which is the series of surveys that I just referred to. And they'll talk us through interesting findings from the most recent US consumer research and what the findings mean for retailers and consumer companies. So let me briefly introduce each of them. Carrie Aldridge is a partner based in Minneapolis. She's been advising consumer goods companies for more than 20 years on a variety of topics, including sales and marketing and growth strategy. And she's a repeat guest on this podcast. We've had her on before talking about the ever-evolving, always surprising consumer. Welcome back to the podcast, Carrie. Thanks, Monica. I'm so excited to be here this morning. Tamara Charm is another repeat guest. Last time, she came to talk to us about the 2020 holiday shopping season. She is a partner based in Boston, and she's got expertise in a range of marketing and sales topics, including customer insights and brand strategy. Glad to have you here again, Tamara. Monica, great to be here. I'm excited to talk. And Eric Falardeau is a partner based in Montreal. Eric spearheads McKinsey's work in global fitness and wellness. He also works with many companies in retail and CPG, helping them leverage consumer insights and advanced analytics. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Thank you, Monica. Nice to be here. So we're going to dive right in. Now, these surveys have been going out regularly since March 2020, so you've seen the evolution of the U.S. consumer over that time period, and you've identified a number of themes, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But first, one interesting thing that came out of this most recent survey is that amid record inflation, U.S. consumer spending remained strong. What's going on there? Yeah, it, it's really interesting. So what we've found is that consumer behavior is actually quite continuous, meaning consumers have been spending and spending more than in past years on a range of categories that were made bigger by COVID. So if you think about software and electronics, we're all online all the time. People are buying more of that. They're buying more sports apparel. Um, They're buying more cosmetics. Um, There's a, a range of categories that consumers have been spending on. What's fueling this is better consumer balance sheets meaning consumers have more in their bank accounts now from a combination of things, from stimulus, where some people still have savings from that. Another thing that has been happening is people have been spending less on things that are out of home, spending less on travel, spending less on services. And that has saved some of the wallet for um, some of the spending that's happening on goods. 
One interesting thing that I'm hearing from my clients, and I spend most of my time with consumer goods manufacturers, branded manufacturers, is a real question, uh, despite this incredible, you know, continued uh, continued consumer spending, there is a question around consumer confidence. And certainly many of my branded manufacturer clients are wondering or worrying whether this can possibly continue. That's a great point, Carrie. You know, we see confidence actually going down the beginning of this year after a climb back up since the middle of COVID. And what we also see is we see a lot of consumers switching. Um, so while they're spending, um, they're spending on different brands and sometimes on uh, lower priced brands, lower priced channels. Let's talk a bit about retail channels, because obviously some retail channels did better than others over the past couple of years, right? Grocery stores did great, clothing stores, maybe not so much. But are you seeing a recovery among pretty much all retail channels or are there some that are still challenged? One of the things that's interesting is breaking apart categories. So when you talk about retail apparel, many retail apparel companies did not do so well um, during COVID. Others did incredibly well. And if you think about what we all have been wearing as we're on Zoom more, um, as we have more casual interactions, and as we get out and move more, um, we're seeing sports apparel really, really rise. More formal apparel has not done as well over this period. It's also interesting to look at differences even within the same channel, even within, for example, the grocery channel, which as a whole did quite well during COVID. There are real differences between those grocers who had a more EDLP or everyday low price format and those grocers who historically relied more on promotion. And as we've seen inflation rising, Increasingly, those retailers who had a more promotionally oriented or high-low strategy are really suffering. So at first, during COVID, what we saw was due to availability and supply chain challenges, a number of our branded manufacturers actually stopped promoting altogether to keep product on shelf. And now, as that has reset their promotional strategy, those retailers who rely on those promotions to bring shoppers into the store are really, really struggling. Now, what we see with inflation and the increased focus on value is that those EDLP or everyday low price retailers are really benefiting from those consumer trends focusing on value as well. So even within the same channel, the story can be quite different, I guess, is my point. Yeah. And let's talk about value, right? And, and pricing and promotions. It's hard not to notice that things are more expensive. Uh, indeed, the survey says that 90% of consumers have noticed higher prices, particularly in gas and groceries. And that is contributing to what you call a loyalty shakeup, right? Consumers are switching to different brands, shopping at different retailers. And they're saying the top reason that they're switching is because of value or price. And that's not surprising. What was more interesting to me was that among people's reasons for switching, purpose or purpose-based, right, seems to have become less important and novelty has become more important. What do you make of that? And what are the implications for companies? How in this environment can brands win customers' loyalty? The purpose question is an interesting one, Monica, right? Because consumers say that purpose is important to them. And in our recent work with consumers, we do find that certain groups Again, there are differences among generations. 
certain groups really do vote with their wallets or with, with their feet with respect to purpose, millennials, not, not so surprisingly. But other, other groups, frankly, boomers in particular, older consumers, are much less important, maybe less aware and less interested in a brand's purpose. And as goods become more expensive and for some consumers, you know, the reality of, you know, filling their gas tank or stocking their pantry, you know, becomes more of a reality. I think it's not surprising that purpose, you know, has fallen in terms of its importance and driving loyalty. I think two thoughts there, like this is one of the things we've seen more consistently actually as COVID has gone along and evolved, right? So to, to me, the loyalty point might be that what was understood as loyalty was more routine-driven inertia, right? And, and as you change a routine, different choices available, people choose something else. So maybe we tap ourselves on the shoulders a little too quickly when we say, oh, we have a loyal consumer. Maybe, maybe we just have a at the right place at the right time and a habit. So I think you've seen that change quite a bit throughout. And on the purpose-driven, this is actually nice that we've tracked it so frequently to see how it evolves. And and this is where the generational differences also becomes interesting. In the end, we're still a small mammal in a world of big mammals, right? So I think you, you see fear as, as certain important realities predominate uh, people's minds than other things like value and, and so on, and that becoming more important at times of higher comfort, these higher level benefits like purpose end up becoming more important. So definitely, as we see consumer confidence getting impacted now and, and people being potentially a little bit more afraid, it seems to have been a little bit less important in recent months. I think related to loyalty is this question of the value or importance of brands. And that's one thing that my clients have been, you know, thinking and asking quite a lot about, you know, how can they strengthen their their brands, their brand propositions, you know, and purpose obviously is one way to do that, but there are other ways to do that as well, whether it's through innovation or product performance, availability, certainly making sure that they are on shelf. But one of the interesting things that we're starting to see is the resurgence of private label or private brands. That's something that I think um, brand owners are are watching quite closely and, and are quite concerned about. I think it's an interesting challenge too for the retailers. I've heard from a number of retailers that they're having the same sort of supply chain challenges as the brand owners, right? Somebody has to make the stuff that that they're selling under their own retail labels. So I think that this shakeup in loyalty is likely to intensify over the next several months as you know, supply challenges also influence the assortment that most consumers you know, will have to choose from in many retail environments. So I want to dig into some of the things that you said. So just quickly on private label, Carrie, about a third of consumers switched to private labels or store brands. And in fact, your research shows that growth in private label is back to where it was pre-COVID. Do you see that continuing? Like, what is the future of private labels in the U.S.? Do you see it reaching European levels? That's interesting, Monica. We actually did some research a number of years back on what really does drive the difference between European private label penetration and U.S. private label penetration. And what we found at that time, at least, was that there was really no structural reason from a consumer um, perception or behavior perspective that it, that it couldn't, right? So consumers in the U.S., 
at that time reported that they were just as interested in or accepting of private label as European consumers. At the time that we did the research, the thing that was constraining private label growth in the US was actually retailers themselves. So retailers themselves in the US are more reliant on national brands. In Europe, you've got many, you know, many smaller geographies with different languages, different tastes, different cultural preferences. And, you know, retailers can more easily compete with a branded offering. Whereas in the US, branded offerings had such mass appeal that brands were historically stronger. I think that we are likely to see private label continue to grow, particularly if we do see some sort of an economic recession or pullback. Um, When we look back 30 years, we've seen that during every recession or economic downturn, private label ticks up a percentage point to two or three percentage points in share, and it never goes back. Um, It never fully reverts to a pre- recession levels. So I think we will see an uptick in private label penetration. I don't think we will see the levels of private label penetration that we see in Europe, just because I do think that many retailers in the U.S. really rely on branded manufacturers to drive their category growth. Another thing you all have mentioned is the supply chain, right? A a big reason for switching was availability. And out-of-stocks have become more frequent given the supply chain disruptions. What are some imperatives for companies when it comes to supply chain volatility? Are there any sort of new must-dos for companies on the supply chain front? So companies are starting to create more local redundancy in supply chain. They're also doing things like using dark stores. And then I think another imperative is really focusing on the products that consumers are going to want the most so that you can have your hero products in stock and concentrate on that. Analytics, I think, is the second thing that I'm seeing companies who invested in the analytics to be able to predict or at least understand where they're seeing surges in demand and being able to route production capacity, logistics, networks, et cetera, toward those high demand areas. So analytics is a huge differentiator, I think, in terms of companies who've been able to stay in stock and those that haven't. Analytics plays another role too. As consumers are seeing things out of stock, only 20% are waiting for that item to be in stock later. Others are just going elsewhere. So the more companies can communicate proactively with their consumers and understand what that particular consumer might want, the better for them. So for example, if you're on a website and looking for something that might be out of stock, if the company has created the algorithm to understand what you might want instead and can push a notification that that is in stock to you right away, they might actually save a sale in that circumstance. The challenge the companies are facing at the same time is where and how do I take pricing action in order to face inflation? So as you take this analytics at the foundational capability, the dual problem of how do I make sure I have the right product with right retailers? The other big thing that's, that influences the decision that helps them overall is how do I use the very same analytics to think about where in my portfolio do I take white pr- what pricing action? So it's a dual challenge, but the ones that have the, the basic data and able to do the, the simple math on top of it are making far better decisions and managing to either maintain or grow share at this time of, of challenge. 
talk about e-commerce, which, you know, has to do with analytics, right? Um, and obviously e-commerce boomed during the pandemic. And your research shows that the growth has kept going, right? People didn't shift all their spending back to brick and mortar stores. Instead, 75% of consumers are shopping both online and offline. What are some of the interesting nuances that you've found about consumers' omni-channel behavior? 65% of the people who say um, that they were um, using grocery delivery said that their behavior intensified in this last year. And they say that it's going to continue afterwards. So grocery delivery, for example, is one of the most sticky behaviors we saw of the behaviors that developed over the course of the pandemic. So one thing, right, I think we forced a grand experiment by locking down the world in order to push everybody to, to a predominantly digital model of either discovering, shopping, and then afterwards fulfilling in many cases for many of the categories. What I think we've seen since is after this experiment of pushing people to try is the categories where that experience, both in discovery and fulfillment, was actually well aligned to what people look for in buying the category, you see a lot more stickiness in the behavior. Predominantly from a fulfillment model, there's big differences in between categories. But the other dynamic is the discovery and, and you making your choice as a consumer. And, and again, in forcing everybody in their homes with less to do, a lot of people spent a lot more time than they, than they usually do looking at social media channels, blogs, every, every way to discover and learn about products online. And, and that, in some categories, we're seeing at least still very strong stickiness or, or very strong influence. And I think the role of influencers in social media in particular stands out there. And it's a global, it's a very difficult industry to size and exactly, uh, and exactly measure how it's growing. But when we take a consumer lens to take a look at how important is that as an influence, uh, across categories, we, we definitely see an increase there. Let's go to social media, which you guys have already talked about. Uh, you know, not surprisingly, around 70% of younger consumers say that their purchase decisions are influenced by social media. What are the common mistakes, if any, that you're still seeing consumer companies make when it comes to social media marketing? And I guess on the flip side, what are the most effective or most successful ways that you've seen brands use social media? One of the things that we have seen with social media is we've started to see some digitally native brands who are able to use social media to create an incredible community. So if you look in sports apparel, if you look in cosmetics, companies have been able to create a community over social media, especially among millennial-aged, some Gen Z, some Gen X consumers, where they've been able to grow their brand astronomically. I think all companies can learn from this. If they are in a category where community is important, social media is a great way to let people share what they like about interacting with a brand and reinforce not only their love for the brand potentially, but also their feeling of connection with like-minded like -minded folks. Yeah, you asked Monica one of your questions. What are, what are some of the mistakes that we see people doing? I'd say the first one is, not taking time to really understand the channel. And I take right from the top of the companies, right? So the CEO, the CMO, there are still some, some companies, at least some that we serve that have quite a bit of spending and marketing, very good brands, good companies that were the top of the management team simply does not understand uh, in the level of consumer empathy, right? What is the channel to these generations that use it most like millennials and, and why is it important? 
And that leads to a confusion in how to interpret the success of investments in the channel. Like, do I think of it as something of, of rapid conversion that I can get some sort of an ROI proxy? I'd say that's the number one mistake is not taking time to really understand the channel and how the consumer interacts with it and why it influences the decision. I think that's a great point, Eric. And one of my clients actually is experimenting with this notion of educating their most senior executives on how to use social media with an initiative you know, loosely called something like, you know, eyes on the consumer, hands on the keyboard, where senior executives are actually charged with building a brand or driving sales or increasing, you know, loyalty, some tangible uh, outcome, and have to use channels in order to achieve that. So, you know, there aren't a lot of senior executives who have spent a lot of time on TikTok, maybe, or Snapchat. And, you know, how do you get practical adult learning? You need to actually do it. And so, you know, a number of my clients are actually thinking about how do they build that into their learning and development plans for executives. Some folks might think social media is pretty contained to a particular consumer group, but our latest work showed that 45% of consumers in certain categories are saying that social media is influencing them. And that's consumers who are saying social media is influencing them. They're probably a lot more who are being influenced without you know, being willing to admit it. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. One of the clients I can think of in the world of outdoor cooking appliances, right? That the majority of the actual buyer and customer is at the very least at the north end of the millennials, but mostly in older age groups as well. But they're starting to the point, like the, the understanding of the channel and, and the why and how it influences their consumer, I would say is as good as I've seen. Uh, I think one of the most impressive cases in America of having used social media to build brand advocacy and understanding, and as a result of very, very good business in the past few years. Eric, are you able to share more details about outdoor appliances on social media? Like, what are they actually doing well? I think a few things. I think one is they realize that it gives you the liberty to show people about what you really care about, and that can go far beyond your product. So this particular example, which we were talking about, which helps people cook amazing meals, they spend the great majority of their time on social media platforms talking about the meal, which is the end goal, the, the end promise to the consumer, and it helps them show how that's what they care about. So when they think about the use of the channel, the frequency at which it can be seen by people, especially once they start following you and giving you more permission to be with them every day, it gives you leeway to talk about a lot more than just your rational product difference or your emotional attribute that you would like to anchor on your brand. You can, you can actually talk to them about what, what they want to do with this. And so that reinforces the permission of frequency at which you could be talking with people, reinforces the likelihood of actually having a dialogue, a two-way interaction with the audience. So that would be the one of the examples. One of the things in the case of the outdoor equipment manufacturer using social media so, so well is that they not only got their message out into the world, but they really listened to what consumers were saying and they made changes in their product based on what the community was saying. So social media, when it works the best, is really a two-way street where not only are you engaging consumers in what you want to say, 
but you're listening again to what they want to say and then are able to make changes, getting to the heart of what is resonating with consumers emotionally the most. We've talked about some important themes around consumer sentiment, consumer behavior. What are the one or two or three biggest takeaways for companies? What should every CEO or CMO be doing in light of these themes? I think we may see as much disruption and change over the next two years, or maybe even more than we've seen over the past two years. And for me, what that calls out for for CEOs is the notion that the operating model that you had in the past isn't likely to work going forward. And there are two places that I think the operating model has been disrupted and may even be more disrupted over the next couple of years. And that is in the the role of the marketer, the shift from broadcasting your message to listening and influencing, and the role of your supply chain becoming much more agile. And so for me, those are two major operating model shifts that as a CEO, I think you need to be thinking about. One of the things that I think will be most important for companies going forward is the granularity of their understanding of what consumers are doing, how they're changing and how to engage them, which in turn means that personalization will become so important. So understanding analytically what consumers want, when they want it, where they want it, will be more important given the changes in loyalty or perhaps just less fixed routines that consumers have and the omni-channel world we live in. Um, where consumers are going to be shopping across stores, across websites, on their phones, eventually on social media as well. Yeah, my head goes to a similar place. A consumer that is as powerful as ever or has their own choices in their hand more, more than ever, to me, pushes you as a company to really need to understand them. Structural incumbency or routine inertia will be tougher to sustain. Therefore, you need to understand where are their preferences and why and, and how do I play in this change the dynamic? Some companies very well poised to do this. Some have a little bit of catch up. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast. A transcript of this conversation will be posted on McKinsey.com very soon. To suggest topics for future episodes, email us at consumer underscore podcast at McKinsey.com. To stay connected with us, subscribe to our email alerts on McKinsey.com. Thanks again for listening.